issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Happy 2022 to you and welcome to YDHTY, the podcast for the exhausted majority who likes their politics in colors other than red and blue. I have returned from my long winter's nap and I am oh so happy to be delivering some new piping hot episodes of YDHTY for the new year. Now, if you're listening to this on the release date, it has been exactly one year since rioters stormed the Capitol and the seat of the Senate president was occupied by a man in a buffalo headdress carrying a spear. And some would argue, some, that this is a time to reflect on what happened. And since the Unite the Right rally in 2017, Trump's presidency was marked by an increasing number of violent protests. And in the spirit of the aforementioned some who might argue, We're going to be diving into whether further steps need to be taken to keep this from happening and how to hold those who organize these events responsible for any damages or violence that occur. And to kick things off, I invited Ben Studebaker, political theorist and serial guest of YDHTY, to give his thoughts. Ben always brings a unique view to these conversations, and he did not disappoint this time. The short answer is... The crisis we saw at the Capitol is far from the greatest crisis America and other democracies are dealing with right now and is actually a symptom of it. For the longer answer, you're going to have to listen to the whole episode. I hope you enjoy it. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So... We'll be releasing this on the anniversary of January 6th attack on the Capitol. And one of the things I've always appreciated about our conversations is the depth of knowledge you bring. They're always thoughtful and they always have a lot of insights that really fall outside the scope of what you're hearing in the typical political conversation. And if this is your first time listening to this podcast too, Ben and I, this is our fourth together. I actually republished the first one we ever did in December. I put that back out. And then there were two others, one in uh, July and then one in August of 2021. So check those out. But but the interesting thing about our, our first conversation, which would have been in January of 2020, and part of the reason I republished it is because this was pre-COVID. This was pre-George Floyd, pre-attack on the Capitol, and we were talking about the impact austerity had on the decline of Great Britain, and it really took a very foreboding tone as we started to talk about political unrest and economic upheaval, and it was very prescient giving everything that would follow, you know, because basically what we talked about is the kind of upheaval we're living through now. So all that out of the way we probably have the most significant instance of political violence in the United States since the Civil War. When you look and when you think about January 6th, just give me your thoughts in general. Like, what do you think, what happened there on a much broader level? Well, so conceptually, people like to use the word coup, Mm -hmm. which always feels to me to be a bit much because a coup requires organization 
and it requires military involvement to take the state, right? And here we have a set of, of protesters and they do not have any kind of alliance with the military. Quite the contrary, people in the military said they would under no circumstances allow Donald Trump to remain in power. Mark Milley famously gave the big, you know, no, that's not going to happen. We are the guys with the guns. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the military involved in a coordinated way, I don't think coup is the appropriate term. Now, maybe something like a you know, color revolutions might be uh, a comparison point. So in a lot of developing states, you get an authoritarian dictator who's been around for a while and people get frustrated and they go out into the streets and they go on a general strike. You know, think about Tunisia and the Arab Spring or Egypt. And there's this general strike and the strike disrupts the economy, prevents it from functioning. So in that situation, sooner or later, the uh, president has to order the military to disperse the strikers and get them to go back to work because otherwise the, the economy grinds to a halt. So you get a bunch of people out in the street, they refuse to go to work, they block the roads, they disrupt everything. The troops get ordered to disperse them and either they do it or they don't. If they do it, it's over, no matter how big the general strike was, or if some chunk of them don't do that, then you get a coup or you get a civil war. Mm -hmm. Here, we didn't have any problem with the troops dispersing these guys. There was no section of the army that defected. There was no section of the police that defected. All of the military and police authorities complied with the orders they were given by government officials. Further down the rung, there are a few different instances that have happened in the last century that are kind of similar. So one that I think a lot of people think of is the Reichstag fire, where in Germany in 1933, the Reichstag, the parliament building, was burnt to the ground. Retrospectively, some historians think that it was a false flag operation and that the Nazis burned it down and blamed it on the communists. But at the time, it was believed that the communists had burned it down. And then, in reaction to the communists having appeared to have burned down the parliament building, Hitler was able to persuade the president of the Reich to give emergency powers to the chancellor. So in that case, democracy collapsed, not because of the people who destroyed the parliament building, but because of the response to the people who destroyed the parliament building. So that would be one case. Another, uh, the Bonus Army case, which I think I've mentioned on, on this podcast before, yeah. where you have the Bonus Army marchers in 1932 in the States, about a year before the Reichstag fire. They're protesting because they want to get their Bonus Army checks early because of the Depression, because they need the money. And Douglas MacArthur, who's Army Chief of Staff at the time, he becomes convinced that there's a communist conspiracy to overthrow the United States government. And that these bonus army marchers are part of a vast conspiracy with cells in every major American city. And that these cells are all going to rise up together and there's going to be a communist revolution. And it's going to be like Russia in 1917. And so he persuades the administration to authorize him to bulldoze the bonus army camp with tanks. And many of the bonus army marchers had you know, women and children in the camp and they, they bulldoze it with tanks and run over people. Absolute, absolute nightmare. Uh, as it happens, there were some communists in the Bonus Army, but the Bonus Army was not 
dominated by them and the leadership was not dominated by them. And there was no connection between the Bonus Army and all of these other cells that did not really exist in these other U.S. cities. But the fact that there were some communists in the Bonus Army, definitely evidence of some, enabled the Hoover administration to justify this and argue that you know, it had it was quite right to to bulldoze the camps. And this was not an issue in the 32 election that hurt Hoover. Polling indicates, if anything, the public generally agreed with his response to the Bonus Army demonstrators. When FDR got back in, there was a subsequent Bonus Army march, and FDR just gave everybody jobs on his new jobs programs. Mm-hmm. And that caused the crowd to go away. And this is kind of a weird one for a couple of reasons. I think, number one, they're not necessarily asking for anything that can be delivered. They're acting on a myth that the vote was somehow rigged uh, in favor of Joe Biden. The The second thing I, I think I'd note is this isn't necessarily a popular uprising. And the statement I'm about to make might be controversial to some, but when you look at the size of the Trump rally versus the number of people who actually breached the Capitol, there were a number of people who were there who didn't go along with it. It was really a a subset of that group, a large group, a large enough group to storm it. You know, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but certainly not like a concerted movement to your point, like not like the Arab Spring, not like the Bonus Army, for example. And, and I, am I wrong in saying that this is kind of historically unique where you have a small group of people who effectively could have really caused some serious complications when it comes to the transfer of power in this country. I'd say the fact that you have the small group of people in the Capitol mm-hmm. is is quite unique. Having a small group of people who do things that go above and beyond what the protest organizers intend in ways that cause the protest organizers to come under a lot of scrutiny that is not unique. That happens with almost every protest. Almost every protest has an issue with outside agitators. Mm-hmm. And if you, know, you have familiarity with the left, the left is always talking about problems with outside agitators and often alleging that outside agitators are false flags, CIA people who come in to make them look bad, you know, just, just people who take advantage of protests to commit crimes. This is something that organizers are always worried about, because if you don't support a protest and its goals, then you are definitely going to draw attention to the worst actors in the protest. Mm -hmm. And because protest organizers are unable to prevent people from attending protests, they can't ensure that outside agitators don't show up. So anytime you have a protest, there will be some number of people there that the organizers might not really want to have there who will do things that will cause the protest to, in many cases, politically backfire. And so even when you go into a protest with perfectly good intentions as an organizer, you have to worry about these people that might come along and might mess it up. It's a big part of why Gandhi, in his theory of protests, argued that before you can do satyagraha, before you can do nonviolent civil resistance, you have to develop swaraj, this capacity for self-rule, self-restraint, Because if you don't have Swaraj, then when you're in the situation of of doing the protest, something will happen. A police officer will do something you don't like. Uh, You'll see counter protesters doing things you don't like. 
and you'll kind of lose control and you'll do something which will be so counterproductive out of a moment of, of emotion. And so you have to have this spiritual position for Gandhi before you can even begin engaging in protest constructively. That problem, I think, has followed every protest movement of any scale. And every time we have a protest movement, the people who don't like the protest allege that that group of people who are misbehaved represent the whole protest. They often will allege that the whole protest is an organized concerted effort to do the things that that minority are doing. And then that becomes a way of delegitimizing the entire movement associated with the protest. And anytime there's a left-wing protest, we talk about this issue. But of course, the same stuff goes on in right-wing protests. Mm -hmm. One of the things you, you mentioned was the fact that historically, protest movements have been labeled either as politically radical or as violent in order to justify a state-led response. And I think one of the concerns I have, especially about the use of the word coup and the use of the word insurrection, is we have a situation where a particular party is using this event for political gain and to delegitimize another side. And I worry that in this conversation, we might run the risk of overcorrecting as well. When you look at the dialogue right now, do you feel like the left might be overcorrecting in their language? Or for that matter, the right might be in their basically ignoring what happened? Well, I think that the, the central issue is that we have lost our consensus about what democracy is. Mm -hmm. So if we think about how this all happened, it started because in response to coronavirus, Democrats felt that a lot of people who are likely to vote Democrat might stay home because of fears about catching coronavirus by going to the polling place. They therefore wanted to make it much easier for people to vote from home. That's a perfectly reasonable sentiment to have. Once you pass legislation in line with that, it changes the way that votes are counted in a way that feels different to Republicans, because now on election night, instead of having the results come in at their usual pace, they're slowed down as you wait for these mail-in ballots, these absentee ballots to be counted. Mm -hmm. This means that you have a period where initially you're getting a lot of the people who voted in person who tend to be Trump supporters, and then it's corrected by a large number of mail-in ballots. So this creates an impression that Trump was winning and then something happened. So the way they changed the electoral reform allowed re Republicans to think that something fishy happened because they changed the rules and they changed it in a way which is optically disturbing. So the Republicans then go, well, the way to stop it from being optically disturbing is to go back to the previous set of electoral rules from before coronavirus. And then things will go the way that they used to go and you won't have this weird behavior. Now, Democrats, of course, oppose that because that means making it harder to vote. And Democrats consider anything that makes it harder to vote voter suppression. And both of those views, I think, uh, have a certain legitimacy to them. It is legitimate to say that during a pandemic, it should be easier to vote from home. It's also legitimate to point out that 
if you have a bunch of mail-in ballots, the election will drag on, it will take a long time, and that that will create opportunities for people to think that fraud has occurred. Mm -hmm. And then that leads to things like January 6th. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an argument on both sides of that issue. The trouble is, we now have broken our consensus on how the electoral system should work. And there is no possibility of getting the two parties to agree to go back to the voting rules from pre-2020 or to stick with the voting rules instituted on 2020. <coughs> and each party has a political incentive to claim that what the other one is wanting to do is an attack on democracy. Either the Democrats want a, a bunch of extra ballots that come in uh, late that make the whole thing look, look fraudulent, or the Republicans want to suppress the vote and prevent people from voting because they want to steal the election in a minoritarian fashion. Mm -hmm. and, and those two narratives are both politically useful because if you don't show up and vote, then the other side will come in and then they'll rig the electoral process so we can never win again. And then it'll be unwinnable. So even if you don't like our candidate, maybe you don't like Joe Biden, but if you ever want, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to be president, you better show up because the Republicans will rig the electoral system such that she can never uh, you know, be president or whoever it is that you like can never be president, right? And the same argument goes the other way for the Republicans. And it becomes a way of driving turnout. I don't think that the Democrats really believe that the Republican leadership is authoritarian. I don't think the Republicans really believe that the Democratic leadership is authoritarian. But there is a strong political incentive to every time these people are in public, present as if that's what they believe. Because at this point, our political system has become so gridlocked and so dysfunctional that it's very hard to make a positive argument for any candidate. It's very hard to really credibly promise to do anything that improves anybody's life. All you can promise to do is prevent some other bad group of people from taking over the government. And that is the principal argument that we make now in elections. You have to vote, otherwise you're allowing great evil to happen. I mean, it, it really comes down to like owning the left or owning the right. And do you think the the way we legit or the way we organize elections on a state level adds some confusion to the process? Yeah, that that's another issue where we could change that. And there are good arguments for changing it. But if we changed it, and we changed it in a way which uh, frustrated, say, Republican state organizers, mm -hmm. then the Republicans would say this is an attack by the federal government on the states. It's a usurpation of the state's rights to organize elections the way they want. And conversely, if you do it in a way which inconveniences Democratic organizers, uh, they'll make the same argument at you. Mm -hmm. And so all of the ways out of this become ways of deepening it. Every time you try to rebuild consensus on how the electoral system works, the reform you propose becomes another means by which the consensus is further broken up. I thought about the burning of the Reichstag as well when it first happened. And the one thing that I found really interesting as things began to unfold and as more details on the story came out and such was the fact that it was our really distributed, fractious nature of government that may have saved us because Germany, you know, the Weimar Republic did not have the same level of distributed government that we have now. And I think in a lot of ways that government was more susceptible than we are. A lot of people make kind of flippant comparisons to thirties Germany. And the thing that people really have to realize about Weimar is that the Germans had this hang up on the idea that there's 
a possibility of an emergency situation in which the president has to have powers which exceed those granted by the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And only the president can judge the emergency because the president has this sovereignty and that there's got to be a location in the German Constitution for this sovereignty. And so there is an article in the Weimar Constitution which allows the president of the Reich to declare a state of emergency and suspend the liberties of the Constitution to deal with that emergency. We don't have anything like that. Our constitution does not get suspended. We don't call off elections because there are wars going on. We held an election during the Civil War. We don't have that kind of, of notion that you can suspend the constitution. And European nation states are different in this regard because the idea of a European nation state is that there's this kind of national people which has existed forever and that the particular political system that those people choose is legitimate because those people choose it. And if those people want to choose something else, they're free to do so. And uh, the question then is who speaks for the people when they want to choose something else. So the idea in German political theory is that it's the sovereign that does this. So if the president of the Reich decides that the constitution is no longer functional, the president of the Reich can suspend it and create a different kind of system. In 1958, the president of France decided that the French Fourth Republic wasn't working and invited Charles de Gaulle, the uh, French resistance leader in World War II, to resume the presidency, to uh, take over the country in what was effectively a military coup and to write a new constitution for the country. And that produced the French Fifth Republic, which is the version of France that we still have now. Nobody today, with the exception of a few people on the French left, regards the French Fifth Republic as an authoritarian constitution, but it's the product of a coup d'etat. And the purpose of it was to end a period of gridlock by giving more powers to the president of France. Now, if we ended our period of gridlock by ripping up our constitution and writing a new constitution which gave more power to the president of the United States, but left the president in an elected position, so the president is still elected, still has to deal with elections, but has a lot more discretionary power. If we did that, huge numbers of people here would regard that as totally authoritarian and completely unacceptable. That happened in France in 1958, and we treat France as a normal democracy and as a perfectly happy you know, member of NATO and, and member of the European Union. Do you think that's kind of where we're headed, though? Because when I look at the last two decades of American politics, it does seem as if Congress has ceded more and more authority either over to the presidency or over to the Supreme Court. And while there's no structural change that's gone on, the, the Constitution is still the Constitution and there's really no way to officially grant more power. The, the, the presidency and the Supreme Court have been given a lot of power by the fact Congress is just comfortable punting that responsibility to them. Yeah, I think that to have the kind of formal change that you have in France, yeah. that would require that we have something like a European nation state conception. And we don't. We have a federal republic in which being American is about being committed to the Constitution and to the political system rather than to some primordial idea of an American nation, mm -hmm. because it's impossible to have such an idea. It's too obvious that too many of us come from too many different places. So we don't have that. We have a, a loyalty to the Constitution, to the political system, and that is all it really means to be American. You're committed to the political system of the United States. 
So I don't think that we can formally change the system in the same way and expect legitimacy to continue because the notion of an American people is is based on too thin a concept and too yeah. political a concept. Can there be a kind of continued movement of power to the executive and to the judiciary? I think that to a large degree there can. And I think that the, the Congress increasingly has become a, an arena for making aesthetic demonstrations. Mm -hmm. It's really increasingly a show. And I think a lot of this started with the tendency for members of Congress to bring cameras in Congress and give these speeches where nobody's actually present, nobody's listening, no actual legislative business is taking place. But the purpose of the speech is for it to go on camera so that voters can see it. And increasingly, I don't think anything that's said in Congress really matters. Mm -hmm. Most of the important conversations happen in negotiating rooms that the public is not in. And once we decided that we were going to start putting everything that happens in Congress on C-SPAN, that just became a place for people to showboat for television. I think it was Newt Gingrich that actually started that, if I'm correct. And he yeah. went in, he went into the cap. I think he was in the Capitol. It was like two in the morning or something. And the cameras were running. Nobody was there. And he gave this fiery speech in front of nobody. But you wouldn't know because the camera was just on his face. Do you know why we can't have nice things in America? Like, oh, a peaceful transfer of power. It's because polarization is a feature, not a bug in American democracy. Plurality rule, not majority rule, is baked into our system of elections, and this means candidates are better off building a winnable minority of partisans via wedge issues than they are in finding where the political consensus lies. And it's the reason America's two major parties are steadily losing membership, and it's the reason you listen to YDHTY. And this decade will go down as one of the most critical in American history, and I'm asking for you to help out in a couple of ways. Number one, you can get involved in reforming our elections by visiting rankthevote.us, an organization dedicated to bringing ranked choice voting to all 50 states. While there are numerous ways we can improve elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most feasible reform with the most political will behind it. You can also share YDHTY with one or more friends you think might dig it. This podcast is built to help people see above the partisan talking points most issues are framed in. And the more people in the conversation, the less effective the spin machine is. There are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to the one who is hacking at the roots and this is your invite to come with me and get down. I hope you will join me in the fight. And now, back to the episode. Then if we, if we get back to the Capitol and the way the attack on the Capitol is being portrayed... I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think the majority of Republicans feel that Democrats are hell-bent on turning America into some socialist autocracy. And I don't think that the majority of Democrats feel that the majority of Republicans are authoritarian either. And so I guess I wonder, 
it, it, are they kind of playing with fire though with this dialogue? The boomers know that it's all fake. Yeah. Like the whole boomer generation knows that it's fake. Yeah, I went to a, a club that met every month with my dad for a while in Northwest Indiana where people present and, and we have talks about stuff. And it's a bipartisan club. It's got some very staunch Republicans, some very staunch Democrats. When January 6th happened, all of these old guys, they all go, why are, why are people taking this, this conflict so seriously? And why are people, you know, they're worried about January 6th because they're worried that people are imagining that the discussion that's going on really reflects a genuine desire on the part of people to split up the country. Because for boomers, you, you can play this political game very hot, but you know that, you know, of course, we all agree that democracy is, is how things should be. And no matter what we say to each other or how we try to politically stab each other in the back, at the end of the day, we should, we should all be friends, right? We're all Americans. And so they're very disturbed by January 6th because it, it suggests that maybe there are some people who really think that the other side is the enemy. And the boomers grew up in a time when there was enormous confidence in U.S. institutions. They grew up in the post-war era. They grew up in a period of intense consensus. So for them, there's a little bit of a free riding on that consensus that they've done mm -hmm. over the course of their political careers, because there's this assumption that fundamentally the whole thing is fine. The whole thing is safe, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, who would want a different political system after ours beat the Soviet system? That's, that's how boomers think about it. So for them, it would just be unthinkable to get rid of this political system and, and really disturbing that anybody would want to. But if you start doing something as a strategy and all of your peers may know that it's a game, but the young people who come up into politics, who encounter politics through this strategy, they take it seriously and they think it, it, it's real. It's boomer politicians who have been telling young people that the other side is the enemy since the 90s. It's that generation has been using this inflammatory rhetoric because it's politically useful. And now it's very upset that a lot of young people take it seriously. And it's because this is what the adults have been telling us. They say to us all the time, if the other side wins, it's going to be fascism. If the other side wins, it's going to be communism. And the Republicans did it way back in 2008 with Obamianism and those <laughs> stickers with you know, Lenin and Stalin and Mao and Obama. They did the same thing. Yeah. Both sides have been doing this same playbook for decades because it's good politics, but it's produced a younger generation, which is really scared, believes the stuff it's been told. And, you know, that I think really worries a lot of boomers as they're reaching a point where they have to retire and they're leaving the country in the hands of a younger generation, which takes too seriously a lot of things that they said as a political gimmick. And I look at the difference between the transfer of power when George W. Bush first took office. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know, but just in case you don't, his margin of victory in Florida was really a rounding error. So it was really ultimately an election decided by the Supreme Court. And I'd encourage anyone to go on YouTube and find some of the C-SPAN footage of the certification of electors because it was not friendly. And it was not nice. I mean, I think it was Maxine Waters who called the, the, the president illegitimate and, and on and on. It was definitely very contentious, but it happened peaceably, uh, peacefully. If you look in 2016, same thing. There, there's some grumbling on the left over Clinton. You know, Jill Stein did a recount 
Hillary talked about and 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 some on the the Democratic side talked about Russian interference, which was probably there, but also this is something we talked about in our prior conversations, which is I think you said it best. You said if somebody with a marginal knowledge of the English language and American culture can overturn a US election, then we're a little more fragile than than we think. But then you have, you know, 2020 where there was a clear victory. I mean, a clear popular vote and electoral vote victory. And yet there's this level of discontent. I, I think one of the reasons Trump didn't succeed was because of that huge margin, you know, because he just lost so clearly. But I wonder if, if we could survive another election like Bush. Well, I think what we saw with, with Trump is that in practice, nobody else was actually willing to help him stick around. You know, Mike Pence was not willing to help him stick around. Mm -hmm. Republicans in Congress were not willing to help him stick around. After he was out, they're all willing to say, yeah, maybe it was stolen because that's what their voters want to hear. But in the moment when the survival of the state is called into question, these guys all line up behind keeping the thing going because if there is some kind of fundamental breakdown, it's not to the advantage of these guys who are trying to build careers. If you're trying to become president, which is the main thing that being a member of Congress is really for at this point, it's uh, you know auditioning on television over and over to be president. If, if that's your goal, then you don't want to have a major breakdown, which ends in the death of the Constitution and a major trans permanent transfer of power to one individual. Because once one individual gets power permanently, then there's no possibility of any of these other guys ever becoming president. And that is really, I think, the thing you know, that our founders themselves banked on, that you would create a situation in which everybody's too ambitious to let anybody win permanently. Uh, ambition counteracts ambition. That concretely means in this situation that members of Congress, governors, they will all talk like, oh, yeah, we think that Trump should have you know, been in. Republicans will say, oh, yeah, we think that the election was stolen. But if you actually put them in the situation, they went along with the election as, as it came out. They talked a big game outside of election season because they want to get those votes, but they are not going to change the political system in a way that makes voting not matter because mm -hmm. their ability to get votes is their ability to one day be president. As we look you know, three years ahead. So we look at the potential for Trump running again and Trump using the same playbook or, or something similar happening. Is there a point where that game blows up in our faces? Because I agree with you. I think the majority of Republicans are with Trump because it's politically expedient to do so. And I think most of them would rather have the field a little more open than it seems to be now. It seems Trump is is solidifying his candidacy. Are we getting close to the point where that all blows up in our faces and we have a real constitutional crisis on our hands? I think it's more likely that we're just going to get stuck in a pattern where it always looks like things are about to blow up in our faces, mm -hmm. but they never do. And we don't get anything done because we're constantly worried about things blowing up in our faces. So we have more and more meta conversations about, do we have democracy? What's happening to democracy? How do we save it? How do we fix it? We keep having these different discussions, 
more and more of our political attention is caught up in that, less and less of it goes to actual substantive issues. And I think this is very useful for maintaining a, a political system that is no longer really able to act. The political system has become so gridlocked that it has to make all political discussion about these meta issues. Because mm. if we actually got back to discussing ordinary Americans and the things that affect them and the sources of their resentment and suffering and the things that drive them to get so involved in political movements to the point where they will put on a set of horns and charge into the Capitol like maniacs. If we actually started talking about that, we would realize very quickly that we're not really able to solve a lot of those problems. Our political system disperses power so thinly that we lack the state capacity to solve them. And that that is really our long-term problem. We are not able to dynamically adapt anymore in terms of our policy. We're not able to make large-scale investments in the future of the country. We are not able to uh, fix systems that are wasting huge amounts of our resources and output that are not working because vested interests are making a lot of money off those systems and don't want to see them change. We can't really deal with any of that. And so... Uh, if it's enough for Joe Biden to not be Donald Trump and to obstruct and frustrate Republicans, and if it's enough for Donald Trump to not be Joe Biden and to obstruct and frustrate Democrats, then these politicians can get your vote and get legitimacy without having to solve problems. And as the political system becomes incapable of solving problems, the only way that it can continue is to have a series of go-nowhere meta-conversations about institutions. And I think we've been doing it gradually more and more and more, really, since you know, Watergate and since the explosion of globalization, the explosion of free trade, uh, all of these things greatly diminished the autonomy of the United States government vis-a-vis -vis these global economic structures that we built, that we originally designed and created for our allies, for other countries, for post-colonial states, but which increasingly constrain our own movement as those states become richer and become more powerful relative to us. Uh, and increasingly, we're bound by a lot of the structures that we you know, once built, things that Americans want, like, why can't we have a bunch of good-paying union manufacturing jobs? You know, why can't we have lower healthcare costs? Why can't we have lower education costs? Uh, these things would require really large changes in the way that we trade, in the way that we tax, and in a global system where businesses can move abroad, rich people can move assets abroad if they don't like your trade policy, if they don't like your regulatory policy, if they don't like your tax policy. It becomes very difficult for us to reform any of that or do anything about it without damaging the economy. And so the needs of the economy increasingly dictate our policy the way that you have to run an economy to have a competitive economy is more overdetermined by that global system. And there's less and less agency for ordinary voters. So the only way that the voter can feel like they're part of something that matters in a situation where the elected government can't do anything really is to have a kind of cultural conversation that goes on and on forever, where there's all of these illusory victories, all of these rhetorical victories, and the person that is the most compelling politically is the one who succeeds in owning the other side or succeeds in riling up the other side better than anybody else. 
And the whole point of politics becomes a kind of series of cultural owns. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing beneath that, really. And I think that's increasingly where we are. Less and less happens, and more and more is just talking. And then every time the moment arrives where we would have to do something that would really threaten the economy to further escalate it, we won't. To have an actual political crisis where the country collapses, a lot of people who have been elected to Congress with donations from wealthy people and wealthy corporations would have to decide to do something which would plunge the American economy into chaos, which would destroy huge amounts of people's assets in the stock market. And that's just not something that elected representatives are going to do. They are, at the end of the day, going to keep this thing going. If they don't keep this thing going, then they're not useful. Their only use at this point is to keep the thing going because mm. they don't do anything to fix it or to change it. They don't pose any kind of threat to it. They just exist to keep it going. Is that because they don't know how to do it or because we're structurally set up so they can't? We're structurally set up so they can't. There is too much dispersal of power globally at this point and internally within the country. So you've got, you know, in addition to the dispersal of power between the states and the federal government and among the branches, you also have this problem where companies are able to offshore if they don't like your domestic economic policy. And ordinary countries, smaller countries than the United States, talk about this very openly, how they're constrained by the fact that they need to attract investment, they need to att attract taxpayer revenue, and that revenue and that investment can easily go somewhere else. That kind of language is increasingly coming into the American political system. I've even heard Bernie Sanders use that competitive global economy language. And once you feel that you're trapped by those kinds of imperatives, it becomes very, very difficult to do anything. And what does it mean to be trapped by them? Well, concretely, it means if you try to reform the trade system or the tax system, there will be some kind of flight of companies or of investment to other economies that leads to a loss of revenue, to uh, having to cut your public services in response to that. If you uh, try to cut trade with foreign states to prevent companies from moving abroad, that cuts supply lines, leads to shortages, leads to price hikes, leads to inflation, which the government is now being blamed for and is sinking in the polls as a consequence of. Oh. If you produce a lot of inflation, if you produce a lot of capital flight, Politically, you don't survive that. You don't win the next election after that situation has arisen, regardless of whether you are responsible for it or not in some wider sense. Once you get large cuts to public services, that is very bad politically for whoever is perceived to be responsible for it, for whoever's overseeing it. And yeah. that's really reduced the capacity of the United States to do anything. And it papers over this by constantly talking about other stuff that doesn't really affect the ordinary person's quality of life. Yeah. Well, and this is what I worry about. This is something you and I talk about pretty much every time we speak, which is the fact that the temperature on the average person has just gradually been turned up notch by notch for the last you know, 20 to 30 years. And it does seem to me that this is all very, very close to reaching ahead, specifically with the with with inflation. And I think the one thing that I'm going to be diving into is the debt market and what the impact of that is. Because again, if you know everything's great when we're borrowing money at you know two to three percent interest rate, 
acts. But when that rolls over and it's six, 10, whatever, you know, that the service payments alone are going to crowd out spending for a lot of things that we really like in this country. Jumping back and thinking about the people who took part in that rally and the people who took part in the protests, you know, one of the things I noted is that one of the women who was uh, eventually charged with breaching the Capitol flew into that protest on a private jet. And all I could think is, what is this person so angry about? So when you look at the energy that political leaders are harnessing in order to create something like an attack on the Capitol, for example, is that a result of people being discontent with their quality of life or is it something else? Because I, I don't think many of the people who took part in the rally and took part in that attack were disadvantaged. I mean, they could all afford to take the day off and go to DC. So yeah. So it's not that the particular people involved have to be disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. What we've done is we've kind of, as we've become incapable of making any kind of economic reform, we have shifted the political conversation in a cultural direction. A lot of poor and working class people have dropped out of politics. They don't even bother engaging in it anymore because they see no point to it because it hasn't improved their lives for ages. And a lot of them just refuse to have anything to do with it anymore. As we've pivoted away from those issues, because we can't do very much to help poor people and we are unwilling to try, as we pivot away, the discussion becomes more cultural. And so people who have more resources are invited to get involved in these cultural disputes. You have a lot of millennial professionals who carry a lot of student debt. And that, that's a portion of the people who are upset, especially on the left. You have a lot of right-wing small business owners who are concerned about riots that might destroy their business. They're concerned about having to raise wages. It's one thing for Walmart or Target to raise wages, but it might be harder for a small business that operates on a tighter margin to do that. So uh, they're worried about that in part because there isn't a huge amount of money coming into a lot of local communities because so much of this money is global and it's building up in cities. A lot of small business owners who might be out in rural areas or in smaller towns don't have a lot of access to capital. So I think there are some people who do have a certain amount of economic pressure, even though they're a lot better off than a poor working person. Uh, but more fundamentally, it's the cultural discussion that we have as a consequence of not being able to do anything about the economy, which leads people to get so enmeshed in all of this. And then it's a decline of other sources of meaning in people's lives. So decline of religion, decline of you know, Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, the civil society organizations people mm -hmm. used to join, clubs, you know, places where you used to hang out with other people. So that people aren't mixing and they're not embedded in communities. They are either undergoing a set of economic pressures that drive them to resentment, or they are engaging with a national political culture, primarily through the TV and the internet. News is at this point just a constant font of stuff to get you riled up. And that's true whether you're watching Fox or CNN or MSNBC. If you're watching cable news, it's not information. It's worse than doing nothing. There's an economic imperative that comes out of you know, what the media needs to do to run competitive media enterprises that results in a discourse that is uh, more contentious. And fundamentally, it comes down to the fact that we can't do anything that feels 
concrete. And so we have to have this cultural conversation to get people to vote, because otherwise, why would they vote? Why would they vote? What are they going to get out of this? And when politicians promise to do things and they're not able to do them, then you have this big moment where everybody gets discouraged and the other party wins when that happens. So if you can get somebody into office who can get into office by being a culture warrior rather than being someone who makes economic promises they're not going to be able to keep, that is a more sustainable type of politics. You know, when I think of elections past, you know, again, let's let's go back into the 80s. You know, there was the issue of the economy. There was the issue of the Soviet threat. Uh, you know, there was the war on terror during Clinton. There was the recession when he first took office. And it does seem to me as if this point, in, at, at this point in time, as if people have entirely given up on the idea that they're actually voting for anything but the other person not to take office effectively. Yeah. They are not doing much else than voting against the other side. And to get back to the Capitol, it seems like that's just part of the theater, effectively. You know, one of the things I'm trying to figure out in this series is how exactly we should react, if at all. And one of my bigger fears is that we overcorrect in the presence of a real or perceived threat and we end up inadvertently ceding a number of our civil liberties as a result. Do you feel they'll never take action on it either because they can't or because they don't want to and this is just all part of the sideshow? Well, civil liberties are not as essential to continuing this sense of American national identity as the Constitution. Civil liberties can be interpreted in lots of different ways that are consistent with people feeling like the American Constitution still exists. So I think there is more room for erosion of civil liberties and for redefinition of civil liberties. I think that we are seeing it happen with alternating which political party is kind of leading it. Mm-hmm. So in the case of 9-11, the Republican Party is going, you've really got to be worried about terrorism. And you've got to do whatever it is that's necessary to protect yourself from terrorists. And then you've got a minority of Democrats, but a substantial number, alleging that 9-11 was a false flag operation to enable civil liberties to be taken away. Similarly, with coronavirus, you have Democrats going, you've got to, to do whatever is necessary to stop coronavirus, no matter what it takes. And you've got a minority, but still a substantial number of Republicans who believe that coronavirus is some kind of false flag operation designed to take away your civil liberties. Uh, And the media, of course, sells more when it caters to those two fears. That's what keeps them going. And eventually you get to a point where there's a certain exhaustion with one of those issues. We're going to get to a point with this discussion of coronavirus where there will be a kind of point of exhaustion with it, where something else will happen that really affects a lot of people in a very visible way. And we'll go, why are we having this kind of foaming at the mouth conversation about whether you wear a mask in a supermarket or whether you have a vaccine mandate for employees when we have other issues going on that need to need to be on the agenda? Because nothing else gets on the agenda when you're in one of these periods where this one thing is the cultural issue and you're either on the one side or the other. And stuff doesn't get done. Stuff falls uh, by the wayside and gets neglected. And we'll 
have a moment of clarity where we'll all go, what, what are we doing? Why are we talking about this? But then something else will come along and we'll get sucked into the next round of arguing pointlessly yeah. about something that doesn't matter. One of the things I always pick up from our conversations and kind of one of the running themes is that as much as we like to talk about America as egalitarian or as a meritocracy, you know, really what we have is we have a constant pull and tug between those who have and those who don't. And it is ultimately the goal of democracy to give everybody a say in the direction of the country. But I think more so is to ensure that there's a mechanism to peacefully resolve these conflicts between those who have and those who don't. And, you know, one of the things that's been on my mind a lot lately is the effect monetary policy has had on income inequality and on the stagnation of wages up until recently. And I'll, I'll try to frame this in a, in a succinct way. You know, when I listen to what you're saying, and you know, when I take the attack on January 6th into account, or even when I think about what's to come, it seems like the ultimate test of America or the ultimate goal is to make sure that when these things get bad enough, that the right concessions are made to the people who are getting the short end of the stick to keep everything afloat and to keep everything stable. Why is it that the bond rates keep being 2%? Yeah. even though we have such ridiculous policy. It's that the bondholders believe fundamentally that the United States government is the thing that keeps the whole global economic system going. And therefore, it's the thing which must always have support. And they'll go on believing that as long as the United States government, when push comes to shove, does whatever necessary to defend the global economic system from threats. The United States that will keep the system going by throwing money and doing QE and doing whatever is necessary. And it's that confidence that the bondholders have that at the end of the day, the United States is committed to the maintenance of this and will do what's necessary to maintain it that results in permanent low interest rates for the federal government. And if the federal government actually does something which causes the bondholders to lose confidence, the entire global economy will explode. All of it. That is really their position. And for that reason, these elected officials are terrified to do anything that would cause bondholders to behave that way. And so what we really have is a system that's in hock to bondholders. The entire global economic system will explode. Happy 2022, folks. I cannot think of a better way to ring in the new year than with that line. If you enjoyed this episode and that lovely message, please leave it a review and feel free to drop me a line with any feedback, questions, comments, or cat pictures at heydan at ydhty.com. That's hey is in H-E-Y, hey, Dan is in my name, and Y-D-H-T-Y is in the anagram for this podcast. I would love to hear from you. Now, to rephrase what Ben said, the attack on the Capitol is more a byproduct of a political system that relies on culture wars to drive turnout as it can't enact policy that would meaningfully improve people's lives. And one thing I thought of as I listened to this conversation over again was how Republican donors, especially corporate donors, hold their support temporarily 
after January 6th, and Republicans responded in kind by denouncing the attack. And the party didn't want Trump to succeed in reality as political instability would be damaging economically, but it would also put their own political ambitions at risk. And there's a bigger thing at play here, in my opinion, because as Ben said, we live in a globalized world where capital and jobs are mobile. And this makes companies way less beholden to nations and makes it difficult for governments to address many of the important issues that surround the economy, taxation, and influence our quality of life. And in an electoral system like ours, where polarization is rewarded, the culture wars are the most expedient path to power. And you know what I'm gonna say here, American democracy needs a reboot, and we need reforms that open the two parties to true competition and incentivize them to compete for the majority of voters rather than a partisan minority. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY is produced by the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is recorded and produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next... This is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye.